you need three things. You need the knowledge, you need the means, and you need the desire. And one person may not have each of those three pieces, but when we come together, we can find them. You know, and uh, someone in a wheelchair may have an incredible desire to get out on the water. We need to connect them to the knowledge and the means that will make that happen. Inspiration and information, it is the Goo Pinnacle Podcast. I'm your host, Eldon Fatty Nelson. With me is Yuri Hauswald. Yuri, how is it going, man? Oh, it is rainy outside, but uh, I am full of sunshine inside because of who we're chatting with today, for sure. Yeah, and you should be full of sunshine because you're about to head to New Zealand, too. True, true. I I just have sunshine coming out of every orifice, actually. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, life is good, for sure, for sure. Heading to New Zealand to do the Pioneer Stage Race uh, with my partner, Andrew Young, uh, in about 10 days. So I, super excited. But let's let's talk about our guest, Fatty. Let's talk about Bruckner. Oh, for sure. We're doing the pre-guest chatter right now. Have you read the <laughs> podcast manual? This is how it is done. So, I and we should get to our guest. And this guest... I think you should introduce him because I think you know him a little bit better than I do. I do. I, I would be honored to to introduce Bruckner. So I first met Bruckner probably about four and a half years ago when I started working for Goo uh, as their like athlete liaison person and was immediately um, impressed by not his results per se, and that's no ding against him, but his community outreach, the environmental work he was doing, his work in American Samoa. Um, and just so many other projects and his ability to share that via social media newsletters and things like that. I knew that he was just so much more than an athlete. He was an amazing ambassador. Uh, so that's how we developed our relationship. Granted, I never had any budget ever to help the poor dude out, unfortunately. <laughs> so it was, you know, just showering him with product. But now I, I believe, you know, maybe things have changed a little bit, although I don't deal with Bruckner as much. But um, he is one of only five Americans to ever compete in the Coolangati Gold Surf Lifesaving Ironman Championships, which is basically like the world championships of surf lifesaving. Um, so without further ado, let me introduce Bruckner Chase. He's back in New Jersey, I believe, correct? Yes, I am. I am back a little bit colder than where you are, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's such an honor to have you on the show, Bruckner. I don't even know where to begin because there's so many things that you do, uh, that we could chat about today that could provide tons of information and inspiration to folks. But I think I want to start with your work with, spinal cord injury athletes and what you're doing with them um, and how that changes their lives. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it, it's great to be here. I mean, I've been listening to the podcast since you guys launched, and I'm really honored to be part of this group that includes such a such a diverse group of, you know, athletes, activists, and ambassadors for a myriad of causes. And, you know, we'll dig into a lot of stuff, but one of the things that's uh, been far more significant than I even expected is we were approached by a rehabilitation hospital and a spinal physical therapist there who knew that we had created 
uh, pretty unique programs in South Jersey to help get people in the water, mostly just triathletes, open water swimmers, lifeguards. But I had done a lot of work with some underserved populations in other parts of the world and some other areas. And she said, you know, when a lot of our people that have suffered a severe spinal cord injury, once they get finished with their therapy, it's what's next. You know, when we look at one of the challenges of, of being isolated, you know, a lot of people here may have been surfers or they were swimmers or they used to go to the beach and be in the water. And through one reason or another, a severe injury happened or a disability became more prevalent in limiting what they could do. And we decided to create an opportunity for everyone to get into the water. So we created a unified team, really kind of pulled from the discipline of prone paddleboarding from surf lifesaving sports and our knowledge of open water swimming and pool swimming what it takes to move through the water effectively. And we began to think outside the box with these athletes that were dealing with new conditions in their bodies and how do they get to experience what the rest of us get to do. And what's been really great is not only have we been able to help the athletes with the injuries, but it's had a real 360 degree positive impact on we work with a university and we have occupational therapists from Stockton University who come and help us out. We have our non-challenged athletes from our other programs who volunteer, who race side by side with these athletes. They get to see what these athletes are possible, what's possible for them, and you know, then challenge themselves going, you know, if this person can overcome these many obstacles just to get to the water, what else can we do? Um, and it's been really incredible from the EMTs that help us out to the lifeguards to the non-challenged athletes. It's been a tremendous positive impact bringing people together and really bridging this barrier of isolation once someone is, is injured like that. Can you explain to folks in Radio Land, like exactly what are you doing with them in the water? And maybe before you answer that, let's step back a little bit and um, tell us a little bit more about you as a waterman, because your official title is professional endurance waterman and ocean advocate. So maybe let's step back a little bit and then we can step forward again. Once you tell us some more about yourself, your background. Yeah. Um, I have been competing in endurance sports pretty much my entire life. Now I, I did my first Ironman distance triathlon back in 1985 and have progressed through triathlons, competing as a professional, ultra-distance running, and about 15 years ago, began to get hooked into the world of, of long-distance swimming, and actually kind of fell into that in Northern California, in Monterey Bay and San Francisco Bay, where uh, that culture is just embedded in that area. I think there's more English Channel swimmers that come out of the San Francisco Bay area than almost anywhere else in the U.S., and I really kind of fell in love with being in the ocean and experiencing everything that had to offer from wildlife to waves, from warm water to cold, really kind of fell in love with it. And it was a really transformative experience for me being mostly a land athlete and originally being from Tennessee to having been rescued from drowning when I was really young and having been afraid of the ocean early on to really kind of discover almost like a sense of awe and fascination with what was going on out there. And then to put myself in a position to actually become part of it. And as I moved through this kind of world of open water swimming and uh, marathon swimming, 
I was always looking for more ways to be out there and fell into what is very prevalent in other parts of the world, not as well known in the U.S., which is surf lifesaving sports, which is disciplines that is kind of grounded in ocean lifeguarding. And it includes everything from craft like the dories or the, you know, the rowboats, uh, surf skis, which are basically really long, really fast kayaks, prone paddle boards as opposed to stand up that you lie down on and paddle, and then open water swimming, you know, in and out through surf and waves. Um, but all the disciplines kind of with their roots in how do we protect those that are visiting the beach or visiting the open water. And through this diverse exposure of different ways of being in the water, I fell in love with it. And I guess as I've aged as an athlete, yeah, I'm still competitive. You know, I still like winning. I competed at the world championships this year. I, I still like mixing it up with the younger athletes. But I realized what an incredible experience it's been for me to be able to do this. And now when I find myself at a finish line, it's not, okay, this is what I did. The next step is how do I create ways for other people to have the same sort of experience? As great as this has been for me, what if I'd been able to have this experience 20 years ago or 30 years ago? Or what if I didn't think I was physically capable of this and someone showed me how I could do it? And so now that's kind of the focus of what we do. I, I get to still compete and do these amazing things, but look at bringing other people along with that. And working with athletes with spinal cord injuries becomes a really big part of that. And that program has really resonated locally, and we've been able to expand it uh, to other parts of the world as, as well. And it's, you know, with people in wheelchairs lying down on a board and being out on the water is good for them in a whole number of ways physically. And then it's a situation in which there's very little difference between someone with a spinal cord injury on a board and someone without a spinal cord injury on the board. I found that they can almost train and compete on equal terms, and the equipment is basically exactly the same. Literally, the boards I race on are the ones that our physically challenged athletes use as well. So it it has such a an incredible appeal across a diverse demographic, and it is so welcoming to people with a physical challenge that opens the ocean for all of us. That is remarkable. Um, I I am. I, I love the idea, first of all, of the real specificity and the one-on-one -on -one nature of the work that you're doing, that is helping really specific people. You see so much charity that is sort of cast out to a broad audience. You are helping individual people. I'm guessing that you've made friendships and relationships that uh, are incredibly personal and, and, and incredibly rewarding. I'd love to hear stories of, if if you can, you know, if there are people that you can talk about hearing the stories of, of lives that maybe you've changed. Yeah, and it's it's really been rewarding in a way that I didn't necessarily expect. That, you know, when you're on the beach with the athletes, you know, we wanted to create something that wasn't just a once a year thing. And there are a lot of programs where they get athletes surfing or out on the water. We wanted something that you could do all the time. So 52 weeks out of the year, we have a program in the pool. So these athletes that have been injured can learn how to move in the water again. They can get comfortable not just using the water as therapy, but using it to challenge themselves and become athletes again. And 
the program that we do with the prone paddling takes place every week uh, during the course of the summer. And then we also create competition opportunities as well. So there were uh, a couple athletes where I knew that they were isolated, you know, because of transportation and just getting around in a wheelchair and they were depressed. They were, you know, one or two years post-injury going, you know, what do I do? What do I do now? And they, you know, one athlete in particular used to be out on a boat, out on the water all the time. And that opportunity kind of closed itself to them because the people around them wanted to protect them. You know, this, this horrible accident had happened. We need to keep you safe. And, you know, at the same time, they wanted to challenge themselves. They wanted to be out there again. And we took what we knew about how to be in the water safe and enabled it to be something they could experience again. And it was when some reporters began to do some articles about some of the athletes. And we had a couple of our athletes compete and become the first spinal cord injured athletes to compete in some of these five and six mile paddleboard races in South Jersey against other lifeguards and not finishing like an hour or two behind, but finishing like three minutes behind. And so they became part of this lifeguarding culture, this waterman and waterwoman culture. And it was through reading the articles in which they related what this meant to them that I realized that this was having a bigger impact than I ever expected. And, and looking at people's Facebook pages and seeing their profile photos, having them on the water, on a board, without a wheelchair, without sitting down, but looking just like everybody else who goes out and paddles. When we were putting together some slides to promote the program, we actually had to stage photos with wheelchairs in them so that it showed that these athletes, you know, arrived in a wheelchair. And we've worked with athletes with, you know, just para-level injuries and quad-level injuries with spina bifida. And we've yet to find someone that we could not create a way for them to be in on the water with the rest of us. We just think outside the box and we, we've got the tools to make it safe and positive. That is so inspiring. I, I, I love, and I had never considered before that, yeah, water is the great equalizer, isn't it? That it takes <clears throat> away all the things that gravity does uh, to people who, who have those kinds of challenges. So, and that's amazing. So you're, it sounds like you've got a creative and capable group of people that you're working with to get that. Uh, to make you know, an athletic endeavor possible for people. So, wow, that that is fantastic. Yeah. In everything we do, we kind of recognize as we look at programs for this and others, you need three things. You need the knowledge, you need the means, and you need the desire. And one person may not have each of those three pieces, but when we come together, we can find them. You know, and uh, someone in a wheelchair may have an incredible desire to get out on the water. We need to connect them to the knowledge and the means that'll make that happen. And that's what we look for. Who do we bring together to bring these three pieces together? Yeah. Now I'm guessing that there's probably someone out listening to this episode of the podcast who is interested in participating in one way or the other. I'm, I'm curious whether there are opportunities uh, for people to either be a part of this because they could use some help or because they could offer help. Um, how could they get in touch with uh, with you? 
Well, their best way to find me and specifically about this program is to yeah. go to the OceanCitySwimClub.org. And on one of those tabs, they can find our unified team and they can read a little bit about it. We operate the Ocean City Swim Club. That's kind of our boots in the ground in South Jersey, connecting with our local community and getting them in the water. And I've done some work with the University of Alabama that has a very, very, very strong adapted sports program for students that are there. Um, I have also done a lot of outreach in Australia when I was with um, uh, the Northcliffe Surf Lifesaving Club down there for the Cool and Got a Gold. I've begun working with the spinal cord treatment agency that's part of the Queensland government and met with some spinal cord injured athletes there. There's tremendous resources for prone paddling and surf life-saving sports in Australia, yet amazingly limited access for people in wheelchairs to the water. So we were helping to pave the way and create more opportunities, not just to get them in the water, but to be able to train and race. Um, and one of the things I'm doing in November is going down there to uh, do a presentation for the Australia-New Zealand spinal cord uh, treatment uh, convention and do some workshops down there. So again, seeing opportunities in Australia. And in two weeks, I go to Poland to share what we're doing here with communities over there, you know, pulling together these lifeguard agencies and open water groups with people with physical challenges and the resources to make it happen. So would welcome anyone to reach out because when we design a program, we're always looking at how do we make this accessible to everybody, not make one program bigger here, but how do we create a template that can be executed in other places? Because that's really how we all win, is creating something that can be done in other places. And what's wonderful about this is all you need is a body of water and a pool. And most people have that. So Poland, how how is it that out of all the places in the world you are <laughs> going to Poland to do this? Well, you know, I figured if uh, if Yuri's going to New Zealand and it's it's summer down there, um, I, Poland seemed like a good choice. You know, I, it's uh, it's February in Poland. That's where a lot of people would think to go, right? If you're an what ocean could, athlete, what could, what could go wrong? What could be Let's nicer? Let's go swimming exactly. in Poland in February. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and what's really amazing is as you know, again, you know, going to the World Championships in the Netherlands warming up in the pool for the pool events, met uh, an incredible guy, Bart, who's from Poland, part of the surf life-saving community over there. We really hit it off and was sharing with him what we do through the Ocean City Swim Club and what I do to connect communities and individuals to the ocean and got an email from him about a, a month or so later. And he goes, you know, I'd really love it if you came over to Poland, shared what you do, and let us see what we could do over here to connect our passion for the sport with our community, with protecting people in the water. And they, you know, he really worked and put it together. And we run a nonprofit foundation through which we do our ocean and community work. And we're now kind of expanding this reach into Eastern Europe, thanks to, thanks to the help that Bart's providing. And, you know, as, uh, as Yuri knows, uh, Magda, who uh, is over at Goo, is actually from Poland. I had the opportunity to talk to her a little bit before Christmas, and it's an amazing country. Is it cold there right now? Absolutely. But we're looking now at laying the foundation to possibly doing some of our events uh, with spinal cord injured athletes, this Legion of Ocean Heroes, but they have the Baltic Sea. And in the summer, surf lifesaving is huge over there. 
ocean sports, open water swimming, huge. And how do we kind of help them see other things that can be done to enrich their community as well? So now's the time to lay the foundation for something that we might be able to do this summer. I was just going to say, Bruckner, since you were taking us on a tour all over the world, I'm wondering if we can um, talk a little bit about what you did in American Samoa and how you worked with that community there in the ocean, because that's a really cool story. And I know there's a bit of a documentary out there. And tell us about that, please. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I uh, a few years back, I did a, a long distance swim in Northern California, and I began working with uh, NOAA's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. And National Marine Sanctuaries are basically underwater parks. They're these special places that are protected. Coral reefs to underwater canyons like Monterey Bay, Cordell Bank, um, and one of the most remote American National Marine Sanctuaries is in American Samoa. At the time, it was Fungatelli Bay. It's now National Marine Sanctuary American Samoa. And our mission was to let people know about these valuable places in the water and connect them to the community. So I was sent down to American Samoa to do a long distance swim to connect the island of Aonu'u uh, and the village of Aonu'u to Pongo Pongo, to the harbor on the main island of Tutuila. It's about a nine or 10 mile swim, but in some pretty rough open ocean conditions and really warm water with, with a lot of interesting wildlife uh, swimming around down there. American Samoa is, you basically fly to Hawaii and then you fly five more hours south to literally the right on the edge of the international date line south of the equator. And we went down there and did the swim. It's the first time I'd been down there, uh, first exposure to the culture. And it felt like going home and really connected with the community, with the culture. They've been on the island for 3,000 years. It's such an incredible connection to place and to community. And it really resonated. And when we were there for that first 10 days, they have a problem with, with drowning and they don't have access to skills and technique and training that would enable their Department of Public Safety to better protect people in the villages, the people in the villages to protect themselves and protect others, and recognizing dangerous situations. So we had the opportunity, we were, we were asked by the governor to look at creating a program that would be embedded in the community to help teach open water swimming, ocean science, ocean conservation to the youth of the territory. And for the next three years, we did that as well as expanding to actually create a, a high school class at Samoana High School that taught ocean science and swimming as part of their high school curriculum. And then I also had the immense pleasure of working with some of the most amazing public service people I've ever run across, and that was the Marine Patrol and Fire Department of American Samoa. Spent an extensive amount of time working with them in the water, training them, getting them stronger, and one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had in my life. And also did a documentary film talking about the strength of the American Samoan community and culture and its ability to impact their local waters and island and the ability that story and that type of connection to place has to impact other parts of the world. And so I was actually given a Matai title, which is a chief title for the village of Aonu'u. So I'm actually a chief in American Samoa with the Samoan name Wila Olasami, which actually translates uh, lightning in the ocean. It's also slang oh, cool. for... 
Yeah, it's also slang for jellyfish. So technically, I'm chief jellyfish in American Samoa as well. But it's uh, it's an amazing culture, an amazing community. And we're looking at some opportunities to head back down there and do more work with the Department of Public Safety and working in the villages. But it's an absolutely life-changing experience. And I can't say enough about the community down there. You also got a traditional tattoo while you were there too. Can you tell us about that experience? I've seen some pictures of that and I should, I guess I should have the disclaimer that I do have tattoos and I have an aversion to needles though. Go figure. But I saw the needle that your tribal elder used on you. So could you please describe that? Yeah, it's in a word uh, or in a couple words, whatever, however you want. (laughs) It is probably the most painful experience I have ever had in my life. So my, unlike walking into a normal tattoo shop and you go, oh, I want that picture or this or that, there you lie down with this tattoo master and he knows your story. So he knew my Matai title, he knew my ties to Alnu'u, and you lie down and they begin to work on you. And it was done the traditional way, and which is two bamboo sticks that are hammered together. And at the end of one of those sticks is a carved piece of bone. Um, and it has teeth in it and different widths are used at different times making the tattoo. And the ink is made from these burned nuts from the island. So basically it's embedding the island in your skin. And he is telling your story and your connection to the place in the artwork that he puts into your skin. And mine covers most of my arm. It was done in two six hour sittings and was absolutely excruciatingly painful and i had had other tattoos done before and but really committed to this i you know i felt like i i lived this culture and community and and wore my heart on my sleeve for american samoa and now it's literally a sleeve and reminds me every day about this strength that i get from being connected to this part of the world and you know, to lie there and it takes three people to do it. Two of them are kind of holding your skin taut while the master literally freehands with these two bamboo sticks in this bone as he carves out this intricate design on your skin. And it's, uh, I was lying on a, a wooden floor on a woven mat in a, a bar called Tisa's in American Samoa overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And uh, it's, it is a it it is a spiritual experience as much as a physical one. That yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I can't even fathom, and and I have a full sleeve, as you know, uh, the pain that you went through uh, in those two six hour sessions because I saw the setup that he he did that with, and uh, primitive is. Um, you know, generous. <laughs> so, but uh, uh, I'll tell you what, Wilson, who did mine, is an absolutely incredible artist. I mean, and so committed to um, the traditions that he's passing on. And it was a, really an honor to have the work done. So that you know, while the pain is there, it's with such an incredible amount of respect that you realize what's being passed on to you and being made part of you that you cannot help but be moved by it. Oh, I totally get that for sure. So a question that I had happens to do with my age, which is 50. Uh I understand you're (laughs) in your 50s as well. Is that right? Yes. Actually, I I hit 50 April of last year, and I was determined to 
determined to make the most of 50 and with the kind of the pipe dream of redefining what we can do and accomplish at any age. So you and I are both the old guys in the crowd, I guess. Not by that much. But yeah, you and I are within two months of each other's age. So, and I I feel kind of the same way. I, I think that this is going to be my fastest year yet and have every expectation of training to a level that I've never reached before. And I love that you're thinking that way. I, just from the way that you talk, expect that you have a pretty disciplined and rigorous and thoughtful plan, well, a, a method for how you got to where you are as well, as well as how you're going to go forward. I would love to hear about that. Yeah, it's, you know, the one thing that has helped me is that I have chosen a sport now that rewards knowledge and wisdom. And in the ocean, when you have to make split-second de- split decisions in very challenging conditions, you know, it's a high-stress environment that, you know, what you choose to do at any given moment is going to shape success or failure. And with age comes knowledge and wisdom, especially in an environment like this. And the training really has been as much as I've moved into these new sports as I've gotten older, focused on skill development. Um, you know, from the years of triathlon and endurance running and cycling and stuff on land, I knew my body as far as how I respond to really long distance training. I knew the nutrition, the rest, the recovery part of it. And it was a matter of acquiring these new skills of these ocean disciplines, just like, you know, new triathletes need to learn how to master open water swimming. And I think that I pay more attention now to resting than I ever did before. And I have a very structured training program, but I'm also very in tune with when is it time to rest and when is it time to do nothing at all. And if anything, I would say the most critical part of my training plans now are uh, a mindfulness meditation practice and a yoga practice so that I have this dynamic balance and I've got my mind in balance as well. Amen to the yoga. I've been doing yoga for 15 years and did it this morning and swear by it for sure. I'm curious, uh, have you changed the way that you eat in any way uh, as you move out of your 40s and into your 50s as a as a very obviously committed and uh, and thoughtful athlete. Well, I'll tell you the one thing, nutrition with me, the, uh, goo has been my go-to for over a decade now. Um, and how I fuel during training and during racing is really important, especially in an ocean environment where you've, you're dealing with, with nausea, with moving seas, with, you know, high stress situation. So what you take in is, is really important and that you can keep it in and utilize what you're getting. I would say that the in training and in racing nutrition is probably where I have made the most advances. And with the out of training nutrition planning, I take a pretty balanced approach to it. I'm not steadfast, you know, low carb, high protein, high fat, um, because I found that I also travel a lot. And when you end up in remote locations, if you're stuck to one type of 
eating, you're probably not going to be able to find it. And so, you know, kind of take a balanced approach. And if I, if I don't get just the right thing, I, I try not to stress about it because I've kind of, you know, you've always heard that, uh, you cannot make up in 36 hours for months of bad eating. So I kind of feel the reverse of that. If I end up somewhere and I can't get what I would normally have, if I've been doing it right for months and years at a time, it doesn't matter if one day, you know, I can't find what I would normally have, if that makes sense. Dad, that makes complete sense. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about sleep. Have you upped your hours of of sleep or have you tried to up your hours of sleep and uh, how you approach that with your recovery? Well, and actually sleep, that's a great question. And I find that I normally need about seven hours of sleep. It's great if I can get about eight, but seven or eight and I'm, I'm functioning pretty well. It's been really interesting though, because as you know, you're going down to New Zealand, you go down to Australia and race. I was in the Netherlands racing at the world championships And if anything, I know I need seven or eight hours of sleep. I also know exactly how much jet lag is going to hit me. So how far in advance of a race in Australia do I need to go so I can kind of sleep that off? You know, I'm going to Poland in two weeks, overnight flight. So you're going to lose sleep there. Um, If anything, I'm really cognizant of when we go to different locations, what do I need to do to kind of maintain that sleep pattern and that rest level? Because you know, again, in the ocean, you're making decisions that will, you know, can, can literally mean you're, you're safe or you're in a really bad situation. And if you're a little groggy or not really, really zoned into it, um, things can go bad really quickly. And so I'm really aware of, am I rested? Am I mentally sharp? And so that, you know, that sleep, making sure I get enough and then making sure if, and I will lose it at some point, how do I get it back so that when it's time to perform, I'm at my optimum level? That's interesting. We we think exactly the, the same way. I'm going to be making sure I get to New Zealand three days before the event um, so I can hopefully let my body acclimate. But Fatty, I think you wanted to add something there about sleep. How much? How many hours do you sleep? Uh, about the same. I I am. I feel great if I get seven hours of sleep. I feel fine if I get six. And I feel wonderful if I get eight. If I get any more than that, I feel a little bit logy throughout the day. So, you know, uh, pretty much in line with uh, with you two. But one thing that I have had a rough time with is getting back to a normal amount of sleep when I travel. You know, sleeping in a hotel room is rough for me. How do you uh, – and, you know, th- making the time change – is pretty tricky. It's, I mean, both of you, I would actually love to hear about this. When you go somewhere to compete, sleep is so important. And for, I think a lot of us who have, you know, race day nerves and anxiety about what's coming up, sleep is elusive. So how do you get sleep before an important event? You know, I mentioned a a mindfulness meditation practice that's a big part of my training. And Mm. my wife is actually a professor, PhD, who does research in that area. And she's had a profound experience in shaping my practice. And I will tell you that in Australia, the most important time of each day for the two weeks that I was there was 30 minutes in the morning of, you know, a mindfulness meditation, a guided mindfulness meditation. What that seems to do is it kind of, it does have a ongoing impact on kind of the way your brain is, is performing. And so 
a lot of times when I've had problems sleeping in a hotel room or in a strange place, your mind's just all over the place. You know, you just get distracted. You're not focused. You know, you're hearing every little noise. And I found that, especially in a new location, focusing on that meditation. So I have that, that kind of baseline level of non-judgmental real-time awareness. And, and when it comes time to go to sleep, I can kind of come back to that sort of that, that level of serenity, even when things are going on all around me that I'm not used to. In, in Australia, it's the birds that start calling early in the morning that are like nothing I would hear in New Jersey. But little stuff like that, you know, accepting it, hearing it, but then being able to stay serene through it and, and sleep and rest and feel balanced. That's how I do it. So for someone who, like myself, doesn't have any real experience in mindful meditation that you're describing, where would be a great place to get started with learning about that? Because I'm intrigued. That sounds like something that I could use. Yeah, it's, we have used, a, there's an amazing guy, uh, Noah, who has a uh, an outreach and teaching. It's called um, Dharma Punks. And, you know, the tagline is meditate and destroy. And Noah's work. Uh, <laughs> Noah's actually a, a Northern California guy originally, who's also spent a lot of time in New York. Uh, downloadable podcast and guided mindfulness meditation. It's about a 29 or 30 minute guided meditation. And there's some that I really like. Um, but uh, Noah just does amazing work in all kinds of communities around the country and around the world. And so we, uh, we kind of support his uh, programs and, and use his guided meditation. So literally listening to it on my phone for a 29, 30 minute session. And it's, it's incredible the positive impact it has on just my day-to-day life and especially in the athletic arena. Cool. We'll make sure to get links to that podcast and to the Dharma punks on the show notes, because that sounds, uh, frankly, like something that I could make great use of. So yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. Bruckner, I'm curious, does he have you focus focus at all on like being grateful for things that in your life is, does that come up in the, the mindfulness meditation? I'm just curious, because I heard a really interesting show on NPR the other day about being grateful. That is a different, so there's different types of, of meditation, and I'm not the expert, my, my wife is by far, but with mindfulness meditation, as I practice it, it's a focus on the breath, that's kind of the grounding, centering point, and it's being very aware of, of what's going on in your own body. It's a very much a body connected. So there are times where you want to... Um, you know, have gratitude or exude sort of warmth and well-being for yourself and for those around you. Um, but kind of the key part of a lot of my very basic understanding and practice is it's kind of a focus on the breath. And the phrase is non-judgmental real-time awareness. So being able to make non-emotionally charged decisions in very high-stress situations. Um, and that's, you know, kind of acknowledging what's going on, but not being wrapped up in the emotion of the moment and making these non-judgmental 
sound decisions. I love that uh, you make no claims to being an expert on it, but you're getting real practical personal value out of it. So that's actually quite reassuring that it's something that I can sort of get started with without, you know, years of study beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a matter of, I always, you know, I, I absolutely am the last person that would ever think he knows everything. And what's been so great as we talk about, you know, we're, we're 50 now. And what is the richest part of being older is building a network of how do you find out the answers to things you want to do or that you want to pursue. And when you don't have an ego wrapped up in it, you can ask questions of everyone and anyone you find. I'm always looking for you know, the best coaches, the best advice, the best ways to practice this or train for this. And when you put the ego away, uh, it's amazing how much better you can always become just by being open to it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I've always said that my superpower is the ability to ask people things. Um, <laughs> You know, to be the guy who is willing to say, I don't know how you do that. Tell me. Uh, and yeah, it's being being open to to new experiences, to new learnings is just incredibly helpful. And I think you're right. It, you stop having this ego that you need to pretend like you know everything as you get older because you have a greater awareness of the entirety of things that you don't know and what a small sliver <laughs> you do know. And yeah. it... it it, it drops that barrier of needing to put up some kind of facade that, hey, I, oh, yeah, yeah, I know about that. And it's like, hey, I'd love to l learn more about meditation. No, absolutely nothing about it. Now I'm going to go find a podcast on it. That's another cool thing. The fact that there is information like so readily available. So very, very cool. Yeah, I want to interject here. I feel like we're almost talking a little bit too here about um, the edges of flow state too. You know, you talked a bit about uh, making split second decisions when you're in the water, um, when there's, you know, inclement circumstances or this or that. And that gets, I think, a little bit into the whole flow state or elements of flow state. So it's interesting to think how powerful your mind is um, in controlling certain situations and, and aiding your performance. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know a little bit about flow state. I know that uh had the opportunity to talk to, you know, people over at Goo that have, you know, really kind of followed that and um, have read a little bit, but not enough to discuss it at a, a really yeah. Yeah. high level. But I think they're, from what I understand, very similar. It is that being able to be in the moment and not being distracted by the other things that are going on. You know, we look at it as well for like first responders and rescuers that if you're a, a young lifeguard going out on your first save out through the waves, you know, it's, it's a very high stress emotional moment. You know, there's fear, there's adrenaline. How do you make good decisions? You know, if you're a rookie and all of a sudden you're in a life and death situation, you need to, you know, call it flow state or having this sort of, you need to find serenity in the moment. And we, teach our lifeguards that, you know, slow is fast, you know, find that serenity in the moment before you go charging out into a situation that'll put you and others at risk. So Bruckner, the last couple of big questions I have for you are what's important to you and what's next for you? What we do, you know, because I'm an ocean athlete that what we do in the ocean makes us athletes. And that's what we do in the ocean. 
what we do for the ocean and for our communities is what can make us heroes or what can make us watermen. And really kind of putting the emphasis that we get this amazing gift to be able to compete and do all these things, but then what do we do beyond the finish line? And the second part of that is everything that I kind of focus on is trying to encourage and enable in others this passion to care, strength to act, and vision to inspire. Those are kind of the three words that we really kind of hold on to, you know, passion, strength, and vision. And I set off in this Blue Journey 50, this this 50th year of this ocean connection and kind of embracing what had brought me here and seeing what can I do with this in the second half of my life. And I think that being able to do things physically, but then how do we then pass that along? And in the balance of what I've been able to do in 2016 and looking into 2017, I'm very excited about this trip to Poland and what we can enable there. Athletically, uh, we'll be revisiting more events in the ocean and really kind of taking it back to how do we share this amazing environment that's really important to me, this ocean environment, and share what's going on out there. I feel that uh, there are areas out there that need to be preserved, protected, and respected. I'm really excited that over the next couple of years, I've now uh, begun a relationship with NOAA and the National Weather Service to be a collaborative partner in helping to engage communities around the U.S. and with some impact around the world in ocean and beach safety, science, and conservation, and really finding new ways that make being safe in, on, and near the water, and then preserving and protecting members of our community and that ocean environment, how do we make that relevant to communities throughout the U.S., whether you're in Wisconsin or in South Jersey or in Southern California? So I'm really excited about the years that are ahead of growing this moving ocean and beach safety and conservation upstream, you know, moving it away from just beach cleanups, but what do we do in the cities? And I'm really honored to begin working as well with the the New York Aquarium and the Wildlife Conservation Society, looking at this entire New York seascape, you know, all the millions of people that live in New York and don't necessarily realize that there are whales playing in the harbor less than half a mile away. And sometimes in these cities, we've lost this connection to this natural marine environment that is right there. You know, San Francisco, it's very embedded in the, the psyche of being in San Francisco. In some areas like New York, it's not as embedded in there. You lose sight of it. And working with the the Wildlife Conservation Society and the New York Aquarium and the New York Seascape, we're looking at some amazing new projects that are going to challenge me athletically as we look at some remote places about 100 miles offshore and how do we connect these this Hudson Canyon, this amazingly diverse marine ecosystem, to the people in New York and throughout the New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania area? How do we make them understand how important these special places are? And then also I'm working with 
uh, I competed at the world championships in, in the Netherlands in surf lifesaving in 2016 and met some amazing people in the surf lifesaving community. And some of them are the organizers for the next world championships, which will be in Adelaide, Australia. And this is the World Surf Lifesaving Championships in 2018. And I'm really honored to be serving as a global ambassador for them to help grow master's participation in surf lifesaving sports. So, you know, really taking one for the old guys and saying, we can do so much more, especially in this environment that rewards knowledge and wisdom that many of us have probably not even tapped our potential yet. And so it's going to be a really great experience over the next couple of years to help bring more people back into the sport or into the sport for the first time, regardless of where they started and how old they may be. I mean, to be able to compete at the level that I do in surf lifesaving, a sport that I really only took up about five or six years ago, and I grew up in Tennessee, not on a beach somewhere, but on the Mississippi River. Um, it's really an incredible opportunity to share my journey and use that as a starting point for others to begin theirs. It has been such a pleasure listening to you and talking with you today. And it's just a shame that you don't have anything going on in your life. You may want to look at trying to find something to do. I know. You know, I just feel so shallow half the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's not good to just sit on the couch and watch TV the way you are. Yeah. We need more more Bruckners in this world. (laughs) We need to clone you, Bruckner. I mean, God, we could... We could change the world if we had more Bruckners. Well, you know what I feel like is... We are changing the world. Well, I think that we we do it collectively. And I feel like if I came to this so late in life, imagine what I could have done if I had 10 extra years or 20 or 30. So it's almost like this sense of urgency now to download everything I love, everything I care about, everything I know to others and let them run with it. It may not be exactly the same path that I'm on, but it's going to be a path that moves us forward in a positive way. And, you know, thanks for having me on the podcast. You know, maybe we reach a few more people or connect a few more people to the mission and the message. And then I get to sit on the couch a little bit and maybe binge watch <laughs> something for a change. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I, I seriously doubt that you're going to spend too much couch time, no matter how much time you have. You know, it has been just uh, such great information, such great insp- inspiration. I don't know about you, Yuri, but I am just ready to go out and you know and do something big now. It's I mean, really feel like this has been a fantastic conversation. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, and I got to say one thing, guys. We talk about you know doing big things, and you know some people it's an Ironman, some people it's their first five k, some people it's their first mile ocean swim. Your first step doesn't have to be a big one. It just has to be a step. It just has to be a step. Fantastic. Such good advice. Yep. Just get out there and do it, whatever it happens to be for you. Hey, for for Bruckner, for Yuri, and for myself, and for everyone at Goo Energy, hey, you know, go out, get get it done, do whatever you're going to do, and keep on listening. Uh this has been a fantastic conversation. If you love the kinds of stuff that you are hearing on the Goo Pinnacle podcast, take a moment, go over to iTunes, uh, subscribe, rate us, review us, tell your friends about us. Uh, the more people who listen, the more the more cool episodes like this we're going to do. 
For everyone here at Goo Energy, thanks for listening and stay tuned for another Goo Energy Pinnacle podcast real soon.